Freak from Seattle, from New York, from the new podcast studio on the <laughs> podcast bleeding studio edge. East. Oh yes, <laughs> podcast studio East on the bleeding edge of neoliberal dystopia today, and it definitely is the neoliberal dystopia that we all know of. Um, quite horrifically, Politico reporting that the Supreme Court, in a draft opinion, has voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, the judgment that allowed uh, abortion to uh, happen in the U.S. and made it illegal to ban abortion uh, from the states. So we are here to talk about all of that, why this actually is not solely a Republican problem, but really a, a systematic problem that has to do a lot with the Democratic Party as well, as well as some forces that are at play to understand how we got to this point where we are just at such a ghoulish, inhumane, disgusting place where we are now trying to control women's bodies and frankly, just health in general in the United States. So here to talk about that are three men. Uh, I'm Munya. <laughs> I'm Greg. And I'm Brian. <laughs> Hey, men can get pregnant and have abortions too. Any of us? It's true. Any of your fucking business? No. Yeah, well, yeah. Actually, I know. Yeah. Mute my mic. Let's let's keep that open. Yeah. <laughs> we are uh, also stall. We are the the most heavy stalwarts, as we learned today from a Gallup poll, uh, protecting abortion rights. Yeah, as well. yeah. We are the abortion rights protectors. If you, according to the polls, statistically, we are <laughs> happy to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, you know, obviously we're joking, but it's, you know, uh, a, a rough hand was dealt. Uh, not that anybody couldn't see it coming from a mile away, but still in trying times like these, I always like to go to the children of our richest politicians for solace. You know, I immediately look them up on Twitter. I go to their Instagram stories and I'm like, please, please tell me. Uh, what I should be thinking, what I should be doing. And so naturally, I went to the Twitter of Christine Pelosi, uh, daughter of Nancy Pelosi, uh, who let us Noted know. Noted documentarian. <laughs> yeah, if you're a fan of the uh, Michael and Us podcast, uh, you could, you might have appreciated some of her documentary work. Uh, you know, <laughs> the creator of politics, what a concept. Um, but yeah. Christine Pelosi, she went ahead and just let us all know immediately after uh, Politico released this uh, sort of groundbreaking story. Let us all know, hey, we warned you for years, but some of you with lofty lefty platforms, I think that's us guys, told people not to vote for Democrats to send a message in 2010. You didn't heed our warnings in 2016. Now you are shocked that the Republican Supreme Court will overturn Roe, but you should be ashamed. Well, you know, uh, Feeling that shame today. I wish yeah, I, mean, I had. I wish I hadn't done any of those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Being a lofty leftist, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, she was speaking to like the Riddler. She was speaking directly to us. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maybe we can unwind this riddle a little bit. Uh, I, I think this tweet speaks to something that is very real about both the Democratic Party, but most importantly, very real about their most ardent, like liberal followers, which is the Democratic Party is a cynical institution that survives because none of its followers can remember anything that happened more than like two hours prior. 
<laughs> yeah, like, no, you know, they're exactly like the Westworld robots, but instead of like gaining consciousness, they just keep on. They're like actually like well programmed and don't have any malfunctions. So every morning they just wake up and do the same thing, like and don't remember the past. No, they're like yeah. Memento, where every morning they wake up, but it's just I'm with her tattoos all over their body. <laughs> Is the eternal sunshine a surgery? <laughs> but like, but they just keep on going back after the surgery. It's, it's their own. The thing that they get excised is their party platform. Yeah. <laughs> so the previous party platforms over and over again. No, I mean, you got to admire them in some way because like the, the only thing they remember, the thing they are committed to is the party line, right? Like, mm-hmm. because you can't, you don't get this shit out of a vacuum because none of this happened right so like there this is a this is like yeah again yeah the, the daughter of a wealthy politician but also like a ostensibly a political journalist i mean i guess the type of journalism political journalism she does is like yeah like what kind of sandwiches uh candidates <laughs> like and shit like uh, egg salad or tuna you know but like but even so like it, it is possible to have some curiosity and like understand what's going on in America, but they're content to just like, uh, seek out and consume, uh, wherever, you know, whatever sources generating the new party line. And that that's, you know, pretty easy to find in America. It's for the Democrats. It's the enemies are Bernie and us, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in that order. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, you got to admire the the like uh, commitment to that, the the organization and like uh, steadfast political solidarity of that, you know. Yeah. And a lot of people pointed out uh, to uh, Miss Pelosi, although I'm sure she did not read it or care, but uh, point out that the 2016 election, which she was griping so much about uh Hillary Clinton had an anti-abortion politician and Tim Kaine as her handpicked running mate, right? Uh, Kristen Pelosi's mom, Nancy Pelosi, was the one chiding us, telling us that, like, look, you can't use Roe as a litmus test for supporting candidates, right? uh, We have to run anti-abortion candidates. (laughs) Enshrining and protecting the right to abortion uh, is a lefty goal you know a, a lefty policy goal or a, a, yeah. sort of a lofty lefty goal right like yeah that's that what we're talking to. about but they, they'll they'll square that circle they'll tell you like yeah 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 running tim kane defending anti-abortion democrats uh winking and hedging on the issue is strategy that's yeah. how we get elected yeah. to yeah. protect the right to abortion what we're saying is our strategy as Democrats is to lie to people. That <laughs> is how you do politics. No, no, here's here's how you do it, Greg. All right. Like, look, you're you're kind of being a little mean here and being a little glib. But um, picture this. And I learned this actually from military strategy. So you pretend dropping the Clauswitz over here. Let's yeah, hear it. yeah, exactly. No. So this is what you do. You um, you pretend to surrender. Right. Uh, and then mm, mm. you build a giant figure, something <laughs> that is like maybe 10 times uh, your size, and you give it to your opponent as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so this is, um, yeah, this is uh, Barack Obama 
running uh, against gay marriage. But yeah, he Trojan horsed his way in there and then he did that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. They, they, but we forget the part where he didn't. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, it, we the thing is, is that, OK, I get it. 2016 was so long ago. Who could remember? Right. Who could remember these things? But uh, Chris and Pelosi's mom is currently as of literally today uh, campaigning for anti-abortion candidates <laughs> in Texas specifically. But, you know, of course, they, I mean, the Democratic Party has pivoted away from supporting Roe for a long time. And 2016 was a culminating moment where they finally, on the highest possible platform, in the second most visible position of the party, the vice presidency, were going to stick an anti-abortion guy to speak to the conservative base they want to court, right? Well, not to be outdone, uh, you know, former President uh, Obama, uh, he put out a statement that he was very clear was both from him and his wife, right? That they, <laughs> he, he, unlike us, he consulted uh, women's voices. Uh, yeah. This, and they put out We're a statement. We're against that on this podcast, if exactly. you can tell. They put out a two-page statement, so, you know, TLDR. But um, the basic premise is, is that, wow, it's really terrible that uh, Roe's being overturned. Uh, those meanie Republicans, you know, who could have seen this coming? And, man, somebody should really do something about it. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, a classic Democrat statement. <laughs> somebody should do something, former president says. <laughs> but, again... People might be but forgetting Brian, the, the Supreme Court didn't overturn Roe v. Wade in his eight years of the presidency. So what are you fucking complaining about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And apparently that is the sole, I guess, gauge by which we judge these things. Um, but again, the party of forgetting uh, forgets that in 2008, Obama made a certain campaign promise to codify Roe v. Wade in law. Then he on day one, by the way. Then he came into office with an unprecedented historical popular mandate uh, to carry out his platform. He had super majorities in the House and Senate and veto proof majorities and uh, didn't do it because, uh, as he told the press, he couldn't be bothered. Not a priority. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let me be clear. You know, uh, we should probably just mention in case, you know, listener, you do not know um, Roe v. Wade does not necessarily mean that it's a federal law, right? So, like, you have to actually, the decision is, like, basically instructive for courts to, you know, base other decisions off of. But um, Roe v. Wade was never been, as Brian was saying, codified into an actual law. So this is something that Democrats um, could have and should have done. And that's why it's so easy to overturn now is because it's never actually been a law. It's simply just been a precedent that was set. Yeah, that's yeah, part of, you know, jurisprudence or whatever, right? You know, and yeah, at any point, you know, the Democrats could have passed a law. They could literally do that today. They could have done it yesterday. They could have done it the day before. They could have done it the second Biden got into the White House. They could do it, you know, but they didn't. And I think that we want to kind of get to the heart of why they didn't. So, yeah, I, I think with that thought, it's worth kind of Going back and maybe looking at the past uh, 50 years where the Democrats, uh, you know, didn't bother to lift a finger to codify this into law and maybe how we got there. Uh, for those who are not aware, right, you know, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. And it's the product of two different sort of, you know, currents in America at the time. 
One was on the ground level, which was mass movements pushing for women's rights, right? And very specifically pushing for this idea of, you know, women's autonomy over their, you know, over their own bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that included things like underground clinics, right? You know, that were fairly openly, you know, doing, you know, uh, doing abortion procedures against state law, right? Uh, there were things like the abortion ship that was off the coast of New York, which was a boat where they would, you know, ferry you out into, you know, international waters and uh, do abortion procedures and things like that, as well as, you know, just movements of people in the street arguing for some sort of autonomy for women, right? Bodily autonomy for women. There was a slightly darker current <laughs> going on at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which was embodied in a book that was extremely popular in the 60s called The Population Bomb. And the Population Bomb essentially put forward the idea that uh, the world was being overpopulated, that it had reached its carrying capacity, and there was just too many people, a particular type of people, <laughs> especially. <laughs> so, you know, too many dark-skinned people on the planet. Uh, a lot of people in the United States itself were very convinced that... Uh, you know, that the, we're being, the white population of the United States was being overrun and something had to be done. This is interestingly embodied, by the way, in both Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, who were actually very pro-abortion. When, like when Reagan was governor of California, mm-hmm. he passed the most liberal pro-abortion you know, regulations or signed the most liberal pro-abortion regulations in the country at the time. Uh, George H.W. Bush was very vocally pro-abortion on exactly this line that the, the the world's becoming overpopulated and all this kind of stuff. Uh, that's the the atmosphere in 1973 when it passes, right? But then uh, a, a funny thing happens. <laughs> Something <laughs> fascinating <laughs> happened. Yeah, they forgot about one thing, <laughs> which is the Southern strategy of the GOP, right? So the Republican Party, beginning with Goldwater and really crystallizing under Nixon, begins pursuing this thing called the Southern Strategy, which was a political strategy to shear off the Deep South from the Democratic Party and bring it into the Republican Party. Something that if you've looked at how the Deep South votes today, you'll realize they succeeded at. Like yeah. 100% <laughs> and totally. And basically the strategy was, what if we became the party of racism? <laughs> Like, I'm just open, <laughs> explicit, to, you know, towing the white supremacist line racism. What if we became the party of reactionary right wing politics and abortion gets caught up in this? Right. Uh, Republicans realize we can shear the Catholic vote away from the Democratic Party by pushing this anti-abortion movement. And the end product of this is Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign where, you know, not only does the Republican Party have as in its platform explicitly uh you know that they're going to make an amendment to make abortion illegal but reagan comes out as the most staunchly anti-abortion candidate uh that we had seen up to that point right Mm -hmm. but the democrats never to be defeated decided that they're going to do their own version of this which is the creation of the new democrats in the 1980s um so Essentially, the Democrats lose the election in 1972 after they allow their party base to decide who their candidate's going to be. Then half the party runs against that candidate and tells people to support Nixon instead. A long story that if you listen to Ending the Myth, you'll eventually get to hear. But uh, yeah. but essentially, a huge section of the Democratic Party says, 
we should rethink who our base is. Because if you think about it, because of what the Republican Party's done, right, in taking over, becoming the party of deep South segregation, uh, the Democrats, like, black people have no other choice but to vote for us. So we really don't have to give them anything. Poor oh, people. So is, so is hostage logic. <laughs> exactly. Poor people have no other choice but to vote for us. So we don't have to give them anything either. Labor movement, because the Republican Party is explicitly anti-union, has no other choice but to vote for us. So we don't have to give them anything either. And it turns out that's true for women, too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and in case people are thinking like, oh, these are just lefties, you know, just saying this. It's like, no, this is like in the 1980s, the Democratic Party created this thing called the DLC. So this is a subgroup within the Democratic Party. You think of this as a DSA caucus, if you like, right? Hmm. Which is the Democratic yeah, Leadership This Council. is not downloadable content for your video game, you youngins. <laughs> this is this is real grown-up <laughs> DLC shit. <laughs> the DLC was a growing conservative wing within the Democratic Party that essentially was making the argument that we the party should move to change its focus as far as its political base from, you know, this coalition that had existed since the New Deal of the working class, you know, certain middle class homeowners who had received money from the federal government, you know, black community, women, right? This sort of co this rainbow coalition, as Jesse Jackson would later call it, that instead of pursuing that, what they should do is like little truffle pigs turn their nose to where the money is and that they should start pursuing corporate support, financial support, and the money of the a burgeoning professional class tied to finance and real estate, right? Now, the DLC was, you know, a totally unimportant group because it was founded by people like Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Dick Gephardt, right? Uh, uh, the, the who's who of uh, all the fuckheads who now control the Democratic <laughs> Party and would from the 90s on. But the DLC actually put out a flurry of studies trying to understand the Republican voter in the early 80s. And one of the things that they discovered was if we're going to pivot towards winning Republicans, we can just jettison all, you know, any pretense towards protecting civil rights or any of that kind of shit, uh, because those people have nowhere else to go but the Democratic Party. And so all we have to do is pursue these policies. This is all, by the way, embodied in a book that came out in, I believe, 91 called Chain Reaction by the Edsels, but uh, where they basically say, like, look, you know, uh, the Democrats got to basically is. 300 pages of saying the Democratic Party needs to look in the mirror and get a lot more racist. <laughs> mm -hmm. They sighed, took a deep breath, looked down at their shoes and were like, we could wear the hoods. Yeah. We could be the ones wearing the hoods, too. We could do it better than them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, this basically is embodied at the time uh, in the Democrats new tough on crime strategies that people are more you know, familiar with. Right. Their attacks on black communities, things like that uh, in the 90s, Clinton's attacks on welfare. But it also included the you know fight over Roe. Right. One thing was in the 1984 party platform, the Democrats dropped, which was new up to that point, dropped any mention of of enshrining Roe v. Wade in law. Right. They basically just have one mention of it in the 84 platform where they say, hey, if we allow this Reagan guy to keep going, he's going to appoint some Supreme Court justices that might overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the only mention you get of it. Right. Mm, seems like a <laughs> seems like a certain instructive origin point to maybe a 
a trend we'd see over the next decades or so. They're just moving the goalpost closer to the other team. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what this metaphor is, but like, you're, it's a retreat. It's a retreat uh, back closer to their to their own lines, uh, allowing the yeah. forces against abortion to just have uh, the idea of this being federal law like off the table, basically, for the next decades. Yeah, and I mean, at this point too, they they really start modulating their you know sort of uh, modulating how they talk about abortion as well. So this is from I just want to read you guys this quick little section here. This is from Rick Perlstein's Reagan Land, right? And this is in uh, 1980 here. Uh, so here, the National Organization for Women invited pro-life activists to a quote peaceful dialogue. Quote. Although we know our respective positions on abortion itself will not change, now President uh, Alana Schmiel or whatever said, quote, we believe it is time for both sides to seek ways to lessen the need for abortion, to reduce the incidence of unwanted and troublesome pregnancies, and to end the increasing polarization and violence that surround the issue. The March for Life's leader, Nellie Gray, March for Life being an anti-abortion group, whose motto was, quote, no exceptions, no compromises, refused in a blistering five-page letter. I view this as fiddling while the babies are being killed, and of course, I shall not participate in such fiddling. No meeting between now and March for Life took place. <laughs> that, that just uh, to be denied, like, by your enemy, like... <laughs> It's well, so fucking pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we want, look, everybody, we want to publicly, we're, we're willing to say it now. They didn't have to have the meeting with mm. the March for Life people to say, hey, gang, everybody listening, what we want to do here is legitimize your positions, even though they're broadly unpopular. And we, we just want to give you the fucking frame we want to give up the rhetoric to you. Will you join us in this effort as we hand you the fucking discourse? And <laughs> yep. no, fuck off, which is the right answer, obviously. Based, I yeah. guess. And there's a political lesson here, right? Which is, you know, Greg just elucidated here, but people might think because we read the past as like, oh, the arrow of progress <laughs> bends towards justice or some bullshit like that. That's not really true. Support for Roe v. Wade was higher in 1980 than it is now. This position from March for Life was an extreme minority position, mm -hmm. even in the Republican Party. All right. But notice the difference in language from now. They're saying, look, we'll, we'll agree. We'll consent to your concede your point that abortion is on its face bad. But we also think it should be legal for some reason. And we're ready to compromise on that. Whereas March for Life's position, their motto. No exceptions, no compromises. <laughs> never give up, never surrender. And which side won? <clears throat> right? This is an important point that Democrats will never concede, but is important to just put in your head. It's also important to note that at this point, whereas the Democratic Party through a variety of things, which is like, you know, we trying to weasel their way out of the Equal Rights Amendment and all sorts of other things is essentially disassembling the, you know, feminist movements, right? Allowing it to be overrun by, you know, women whose main concern is just whether or not they can get an executive position at their, <laughs> you know, Fortune 500 company, <laughs> as opposed to, like, dealing with actual fucking issues that women face. Uh, whereas the anti-abortion movement 
is a full-on terrorist movement at this point who is shooting up clinics, blinding people inside of clinics, burning things down, as well as Marchie, you know, having a no compromises, no exceptions uh, position towards their national politics, right? You know, on the on the you know legal stage, right? So it sounds like one one side was a lot more radical and frankly like militant than know the other but it just happened to be that that was the hardline anti-abortion people yeah and, and weirdly as the years go on they start to get a lot of traction <laughs> somehow having a hard line that you refuse to budge on and militantly pursuing it leads to political victories right and no one uh, in power matching that energy with an opposing force you know yeah yeah, in 1981, they already are able to get a vote in the Senate on a bill for an anti-abortion amendment to the Constitution, which, by the way, is voted, is given the thumbs up, right, in committee by one uh, senator. Maybe you guys have heard of him, Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, yeah, 1981, Joseph Biden pushed to have abortion made illegal nationally via he. He wanted to codify something regarding Roe v. Wade in law. Brian, <laughs> you are being just so unreasonable, a loony, loony leftist. Um, you, you know, that he was only 42 years old when that happened. <laughs> that was over 40 years ago. All right. Like he's grown and, you know, maybe people can change their opinion over time. How about you think about that? Well, and to be fair, too, in Joseph Biden's brain currently today, 1981 is the future. It hasn't happened yet. So, <laughs> so he still has time to go back and erase that. <laughs> but yeah, so this culminates, you know, in the 90s, right? This push to move the Democratic Party to the right that's led by the DLC culminates in the 90s with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992, right? He essentially launches his campaign or his rise to stardom in the primaries by executing a mentally handicapped black man personally flying to Arkansas to execute him for TV uh, so that he could win the New Hampshire primary. To give you an idea of how cool a guy Bill Clinton is. Um, but again, on can on the campaign trail, he does two things, which we're going to get become real familiar with with the Democratic Party, which is he makes a promise to codify Roe v. Wade in law on day one. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me if you've heard that before. <laughs> and number two, he comes up with a new slogan. Mm. And this slogan, which will haunt everybody since that is, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. <laughs> <laughs> what? What the fuck? It's that so was like, That was worse than I was expecting, <laughs> to be honest with you. That, that's just like very... It's like it's like a Riddler clue or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it is. It's convoluted. It's it's bad messaging on a lot of levels, except perhaps at what maybe by the end of this conversation we will arrive at must be its real goal, which is to fucking undermine bodily autonomy in terms of abortion. Ultimately, like the framing is incredible. It's got to be safe, legal and rare, implying that it's unsafe right now. The ostensible reference here is that when it is illegal it becomes unsafe but already like it's just, this is just not effective messaging on that legal again legal like it already is legal it, it was legal in america like that's not a battle you should be trying to wage right so it's about 
you know, this classic democratic thing of giving the framing of where the issue lies to the other side, where you say, what we're fighting about here is whether abortion should be legal. Whereas you could be saying, this has been decided, fuck you, it's very popular, and uh, we're going to do a procedural thing that no one should pay attention to of, you know, actually making it federal law because, you know, we might as well. Like, they want to play in the culture war, but at the same time, they don't want to use it the way the Republicans do. They want to, to give up the frame every time. So you're making the wrong choice twice there, you know? Mm-hmm. Choose either choose not to get involved in the culture war bullshit, frame your shit some other way. Or if you're going to, you got to go on the attack, you know, but like, it's like describing a retreat, you know, it's like, look, the forces uh, against abortion and bodily autonomy are advancing on us. uh, And we're like rallying you to protect it. Right. When like it's enshrined in law and very popular. So like, why are you making this? Why is this like a thing that sounds like a, needs defending rather than uh just like you know being the reality that everyone agrees on you know it's a framing thing it, you know it's a, it's a framing thing and a mindset thing right yeah. yeah yeah you begin with defeat right yeah and then but the real crime of course the real the worst part of it is the last part rare which really does give up all the framing just like now was trying to do before and say very clearly from the loudest voice at the top of the Democratic Party, abortion is bad. Uh, it's mm. a sin. It's evil. It's murder. Uh, you shouldn't be doing it. We just have to let it happen because it's a part of how, what we, for some reason, we need society to function this way. Uh, and, you know, we have like a theoretical, like legalistic commitment to uh, some kind of you know, right to privacy as in bodily autonomy from the government. And so on a technicality, we need to keep this around. But really, yes, we can all agree with your radical, extreme, unpopular religious fundamentalist idea that that it's bad, that it's a bad thing. Mm. Yeah. And by giving up that frame, right, you're immediately inviting the listener to say, but if it's bad, why don't we do something about it? Right. You know, Mm -hmm. especially when, you know, Bill Clinton was a, you know, extremely hawkish law and order man on everything else. Right. Uh, Now, for people, again, who can't remember these things, uh, like I know from arguing with libs on Twitter that their response to saying, oh, you know, Clinton basically sold out the, you know, pro-abortion movement. uh, They would say, yeah, but Donald Trump, though, Donald Trump must have stopped him since he has always been our president (laughs) he's always been here right um clinton came into office in 1992 with a huge two-thirds majority in the house he had 57 seats in the senate well he could have carried out that campaign promise to to codify roe v wade he didn't that was a choice right that is a choice he made not to do it right which not to let previous that would have been more popular then than now. Yep. And not to let previous Democrats would have been more popular and wouldn't even like have really made a huge like blip on like, yep. you know, the radar. It would be a technicality basically because it was the, already assumed to be, you know, well, it's just like it's it's a formality to make it the law at that point, right? right. Like well, the, but anti-abortion is lost <laughs> with Roe v. Wade. Like they, yeah. they were defeated. 
Yeah, yep. and in the polls and in the election of Bill Clinton, right? Yeah. He was campaigning on that. Yeah. It's this is this is so key. The fact like what we're trying to say here, like the fact that sentiment on this has changed goes back to this because this thing, because you allowed a fringe position to become a legitimate topic of ideological and political debate in this country that then forced everyone to ask themselves to ruminate on it and take in the various positions positions and think, how big a shithead am I? Like, do I want to like stick my nose in fucking other people's reproductive organs? Like, and you know, given enough input and marketing, uh, more people have said yes. Still not many, yeah. but like, and it's it was allowed to become a serious issue for political debate, a central culture war issue. And yeah. that was not necessary. And that was ground given up by the Democrats. Yeah. And, and again, I, I don't want to uh, sell uh, our previous Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, short. He also had even larger majorities in the House and Senate mm-hmm. and refused to do anything. He just also never promised to help anybody. Any yeah, well, because so. he <laughs> was legit. I mean, he was, a, you know, a Christian weirdo who probably uh, was le- legitimately personally against it, you know? Yeah. But um, yeah, so I mean, this is the thing is that the Democratic Party is going to allow this framing on abortion to completely shift right into the favor of anti-abortion movements. And one of the ways they do it is they totally individualize this discussion, right? They make it purely a discussion of individual rights. They take the social nature out of it entirely, right? Which is this question of the extreme costs of raising kids in America, the fact that this is an extremely sexist country where if you are a woman, you become pregnant, even though it took a, you know, presumably a male partner to do that. Uh, you are the only one who is saddled with the responsibility of that child. Right. All this kind of stuff. all that was wiped off the table by the Clintons. But they also threw another little just cherry on top of it, which goes into their attacks on welfare. It goes into their, you know, pro policing policies which they also individualize this as personal failure. So look, if you're a woman and you're in some sort of strait where getting an abortion is the logical thing to do, right, because of your economic situation, your personal situation, et cetera, that does not represent a failure of society to support these women. That represents the failure, personal, moral failure of that woman herself, who, by the logic of the American carceral system, should be punished mm-hmm. right yeah it, it's selfish it's selfish for one to even do that right like what it's it's a moral failing you should have taken a you know financial responsibility 101 before you made that choice to get pregnant mm-hmm. like how how dare you even you know attempt to get pregnant if you if you you know can't afford it or are suffering the consequences uh, of capitalism and you know uh you know, living off wage labor, which does not, you know, for you and living in a very patriarchal and sexist country. That's all just completely wiped. And it's the same shit that you hear from Democrats and, you know, Republicans, conservatives, um, you know, all alike is this way of individualizing stuff to essentially wipe the entire systematic analysis and 
Keeley, the forces underneath that, um, away from the discussion purely. And that, you know, that re, that I think that uh, what we're going to get at is that that rewires, you know, how people actually, you know, digest and process and analyze these issues. Because now mm-hmm. you're now everyone else is analyzing other people on and judging people on individual moral terms instead of looking at this as just like a public health um, necessity. You know, uh, it's it's it, these things and these frames um, do have extreme consequences, especially when politics is just, um, you know, dominated by two parties that is inherently influential. It's it's the 90s. It's the Clinton years when blaming the system becomes a punchline in America, Mm. you know? Yeah. And, you know, he uses the same technique much more famously, right, to attack welfare that, you know, look, Mm -hmm. the fact that this country has so many people in such desperate poverty is not the fault of the economic system of this country or the state, you know,'s ability to support people. It's the individual fault of everybody on welfare, right? And they do the same thing with women. Now, you know, for people who maybe are thinking, oh, it's not that bad. If you talk to people who are, say, anti-abortion, right, and you say, well, what about, you know, poor women who can't afford the child or whatever? They will inevitably tell you, well, that's their fault. They shouldn't have gotten pregnant, right? If you talk or listen to the lib debate a lot of times about abortion, you'll get these sob stories about what about the woman who's going to college, whose career is <laughs> thrown <laughs> off course by a pregnancy, right? And again, they are using the exact same logic as that freak who is like, it's her fault for getting pregnant, right? They're just on, you know, a different so- side of it. They're saying, oh, you know, yeah, she's morally bad, but, you know, whatever. That argument should be, okay, yeah, abortion should be legal. Also, so should college, right yeah, so right. like a lot of things right like you know uh having a kid shouldn't be it should be accepted that having a kid is a death sentence right for your life your you know economic situation whatever right but in the framing of how the guys talk about abortion that is just an accepted base level fact right is that having a kid yeah it's going to be an economic death sentence for you but you also deserve it you know now the Republicans at this time are doing something a little different, which is uh, they're really stepping up the anti-abortion terror campaign. The 90s really is the golden age of bombing abortion clinics and shooting up, do- you know, murdering doctors and things like that. Uh, again, which makes the Democrats sort of genuflection towards these freaks even more disgusting, honestly. Um, but uh, I do have a kind of like a weird theory about that, which is the evangelical church really was like organized around the cold war logic, right. And the defeat of communism in the post world war two period. And I think with the dissolution of the Soviet union in 91, I think they really needed a new project and that just became bombing abortion clinics. (laughs) Um, And uh, the Republican party cheered them on every step of the way, just as Reagan did. Uh, The Democratic party could have done something about that too. They chose not to. Right. So these are decisions, right? These are decisions. Conscious now, decisions. No hands were tied here. Yep. The Republican Party could have done what it wanted. So this is what they wanted. That's the only conclusion you can draw. Right. So this all culminates, I think, in the 2000s with the election of George W. Bush, but asterisks on election there. The election of George <laughs> W. Bush. But he won. The ascension. Right? And, yeah. You know, and I think this is the victory of the evangelical politics around women. Right. That is what the election of George W. Bush represents. Right. And once again, just like the abortion issue, 
George W. Bush was not a popular guy. <laughs> Certainly didn't get a popular vote. Probably didn't get the electoral vote either. But, you <laughs> Most know. Most likely. But once again, the Democrats chose, chose not to challenge that in any way. And to just uh, let I it was go. Like, oh, well, I guess uh, Bush uh, won by like uh, like 60 votes after like five like dubious recounts. Well, you know, th- those are the rules. We got. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> sir. It was an honor competing with you. <laughs> Well, and so I, I think this really is when the evangelical movement reaches its like height of sort of popular and political power. Um, and as maybe the one evangelical on this uh, podcast, Greg, uh, maybe you give us a little <laughs> insight into the, who the evangelicals are, and what kind of freaks and weirdos are made up of this of this movement. Well, you know, I mean, we're going to get into this like maybe when we talk about some of the theories of like where the motivations for this stuff comes from, but like I did grow up in, in that particular cult and man. Yeah. I mean this shit, people were really amped up about this shit in the nineties. Also other weird shit too, though. I think like I've always looked at this kind of culture war stuff in terms of like the evangelical religious right as being like a group of people who are primed for this stuff by their like religious ideology and are also connected in a community that is a uh, organized in such a way that it is ready to be politicized because you have networks of churches and literature and media and then you have people coming there every week and then they're primed for these certain things and i always i mean including at the time sort of saw like i mean it's easy it's easiest to like picture the Another a big issue at the time was uh, evolution, teaching mm-hmm. evolution in schools that they were all hopped up about oh, really yeah, like just that. talking about nonstop. Um, and it's it's something that really, honest to God, no one gives a shit about. Yeah. Like who gives a flying fuck? Uh, even if you believe in the Bible and you even take an uh you know some kind of fundamentalist view of it like what would motivate you to care about the idea of evolution which i mean they would just get upset about the idea of evolution and then of course the culture war issue of it being taught in schools and stuff but i what i always pictured it as is like this and things like abortion are things that they're ideologically primed to be politicized around and you have the the organizational structure and someone has decided to market it to them you know but yeah. stuff that no one really gives a shit about. Like if you weren't if you weren't flooding these people with the marketing for it, like day like day in and day out through the networks of their communities and churches and the attendant like media, no one would this shit wouldn't cross anybody's mind ever. Except for maybe like, you know, a radical fringe. So I so I see it as like a power structure finds a radical fringe of weirdos that have like an issue like this. And then say to themselves, hey, we can do the like market research and market this to a much broader audience of weirdos, you know, who otherwise wouldn't give a fuck. I don't know. But yeah, nonstop like obsession with this stuff in the 90s in like where I how in the community I was growing up in. Yeah. And it should be noted. I mean, when we talk about the ideas evangelicals come to, I you're right, Greg, in that they they don't these ideas don't, don't just pop in their head, even if they are primed to receive them. Uh, starting in you know the late '40s, going to the '50s, the evangelical church has always been flush with corporate money, yeah. right? From 
oil companies from companies that have names that sound suspiciously like CIA Incorporated, um, <laughs> things like that, right? Where they've been flooded with money. And with that money has come ideas, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it just so happens, uh, I guess, that the CIA figured out that this, these people are uh, especially just ready to be stormtroopers. Well, and, <laughs> they are just waiting for the, a prime mover. And as you yeah. say, in the post-war era, that's basically just cold war anti-communism yeah um john birch type stuff but broadly the evangelical world like coming out of the second world war is like fairly apolitical in a way Mm -hmm. like they're not about like giving money donating working on campaigns a lot of churches like aren't even really that hyped on voting um because you're not really voting against communists in american elections you know and you, there weren't even then really politicized to imagine that they were or something for the most part. Um, but someone made a decision, you know, people made a decision starting in the 60s, but really like it got going in the 70s with like, um, you know, Jerry Falwell and uh, and you know, sort of and Billy Graham uh, before that of like saying like we're going to politicize this primed community this with you know weird religious views who we can now make them care about that in terms of uh a culture war in america that they they just weren't interested in fighting before they were uh sort of sitting out the culture before that was mm. the attitude of a lot of evangelicals if you read the history of uh of the church in america um like for the for the large part they were just sitting out you know they were like yeah, yeah. we're over here we're doing our own thing yeah we don't like the the uh cosmopolitan social mores of america but you know we're doing our own thing and it was you know there was organized money and marketing that went into uh politicizing the culture war and getting them engaged starting in the 70s yeah and i think that that starting the 70s is an important point because it lines up with the southern strategy right i mean i I think these are things being coordinated out of various republican think tanks and offices and things like that um so this is where at the point where I think we want to introduce an argument that I in previous episode I was reading out of uh, this book by a journalist named Jenny Brown called Without Apologies. That's about the abortion movement. And we'll we'll excerpt the segment where she kind of lays this argument out and we'll link it in the notes. And I think it is worth reading. So listener, I promise you it's not long. It is worth the read. So look through it. But Jenny Brown lays out this argument that uh I'll just sort of quickly summarize as in 1973, Roe v. Wade was able to get through a largely conservative Supreme Court, you know, (laughs) past a very conservative uh, President Nixon, right? When conservative was on the rise, according to the New York Times, right? Uh, This, you know, uh, or this uh, case was able to go through, right? And her argument is the reason is because of fear of overpopulation, right? There was a Malthusian panic amongst the American ruling class that made Roe v. Wade seem like something that had to be done, right? That abortion had to be opened up, had to be made more legal. But in the ensuing decades, the worm turns, right? As the 80s and 90s drag on, birth rates decline. By the 2000s, you can start to see a generalized panic in the financial press and amongst certain groups uh, that maybe the birth rate in America has collapsed below replacement levels, uh, which it had. But, you know, but what that would mean, right, for funding things like Social Security or more importantly, for, uh, you know, 
future workers, right? You know, the, providing a supply of future workers. Continued economic growth. Yeah. And that during this time, this concern is going to lead towards uh, more money flowing from, you know, corporate overlords and whatnot into the anti-abortion movement, into these groups who you could, you know, call the American ruling class, taking anti-abortion politics more seriously than they had in the past, right? And I, you know, I think that this is a really interesting argument. She compares, you know, this same crisis is happening in Western Europe at the time. And she talks about how Western Europe is able to resolve this issue through social programs, right? Through direct payments to mothers, right? Through socialized healthcare, all this kind of stuff, right? To make it less hard to have a fucking kid. So you might choose to if you want to. Yeah. And points out in the United States uh, where, you know, these same crunches are hitting American people, which is why they're having less kids, which is they work longer hours. They make less money. Having a children's become a child's been wildly more expensive. It's the number one reason why people don't have kids is that it's too expensive. Uh, So I'm going to read this quote from uh, Jenny Brown here. She says, rather than encourage childbearing with incentives, as they have in Europe, in the United States, we have a regime of coercion. (laughs) Right. And get the carrot, we get the stick. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And essentially argues that the huge push that begins with the election of George W. Bush for restricting abortion across the board in states across the country and challenging Roe, you know, aggressively challenging Roe in the courts comes from, you know, all that shit has to be funded. All that legislation has to be written. And it comes from a growing support in the American ruling class for, you know, opening up the the baby tap in America. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> to to try and get some more kids out. Mm-hmm. And she kind con- of, this was very interesting reading, Brian. She contrasts this analysis with the sort of more common analysis uh, that she cites. Uh, for example, she gives the examples of Thomas Frank and Joan C. Williams, which is a very common analysis, which is that um, it's purely cynical ploy uh, on the part of the ruling class to exploit the uh, fundamentalist anti-abortion views of a uh, portion of the populace to excite them uh, electorally to make a coalition between social conservatives and business-friendly, capital-friendly uh, legislation uh, through the the structure of the Amer- the uh, Republican Party and. Yeah, obviously that's true to an extent. Um, I that's certainly similar to like how I was describing how I've always seen it. Um, though she cites them as saying like there's this this large uh, you know section of the populace that was into these things and that you know the power structure cynically attached itself to that. I, I see it more as like the power structure cynically marketed these really fringe ideas to a wider group of people but this but the same thing's true in the end um that it's this difference between there being a cynical move a totally cynical electoral strategic move by the power structure in this country to exploit anti-abortion sentiment and this other very interesting view here that i you know i'm i think i'm yeah sympathetic to that um that there's something earnest going on yeah, and I would like to say, I mean, I, I think this idea that you could have two ideas that seem contradictory, but actually work in parallel, right, mm-hmm. coexist Absolutely. in human rights is 
not only very common, right, but is rife in the discussion of, you know, how the anti-abortion movement grew in power and things like that. And to give an example coming from a slightly different direction, right, is to talk about the, you know, the the foot soldiers on the ground and one particular group, which is called the Quiverful Movement, which for those who are thankfully unaware, is essentially a evangelical cult, right? And their beliefs regarding women could essentially be boiled down to uh, women are baby factories. Whether, you know, you choose to believe the people who've escaped this cult or you choose to believe the lawyers who represent the cult, uh, what happens is essentially once women are able to give birth, they are married off to somebody and immediately are impregnated. And then the goal is to essentially have them in a constant state of pregnancy, just shitting out children, right, until they can't anymore. Uh, families having, you know, 12, 13, 14 kids in the Quiverful movement, extremely common. Uh, and, you know, women. Mm, I are, wonder how many, um, you know, <laughs> DNA go back to the, the leader of that cult. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the also a lot of it is that, like, you know, uh, younger women are kept out of school because they have to raise all the other kids, which they just see as like preparing them for their actual job, which is to have more kids. Anyways. This all just sounds like crazy evangelical shit, but there's been interesting things that have come out of the people who've escaped the movement, where when talking about why they believe these things, you might say, oh, well, this is just some like weird Christian shit about being fruitful and multiplying, right? But they don't say that. What they say is, oh, no, in Quiverful Publications, what they talk about is the rise of China. That China has so many people, so many more than the US, four times as many, and they're having more every day. And we're going to get overrun by Chinamen if we don't do something. And that essentially the Quiverful Movement is a white nationalist project to create white baby factories like in central, you know, the central part of the United States that are just trying to catch up, I guess, with China. Right. Like reinventing like the factory farm, like industrial <laughs> yeah. factory farming, but like for, for babies, like, yeah, for white babies, babies. Yeah. No, for white. <laughs> and so here. We essentially have two ideas existing in tandem, right? A Malthusian idea of the, the brown races are being too fruitful and multiplying. And this newer idea of the white races need to be more fruitful. And, multiply, right? <laughs> and, what, and what links them? Racism, which is how you know <laughs> yes. this probably all makes sense in America. And notice the thing that has been talked about a lot for the last six years now. The declining white birth rate, right? Yeah. On congressional floors, white on Fox genocide. News. All these kind of things, They're right? They're replacing us. The great replacement, all this kind of bullshit, right? And I think that, you know, we, we've certainly talked about the Malthusian inclinations of America's ruling class on the show a lot, right? And we've showed evidence of it existing quite a bit. And I think there coexists in a lot of these people's brains, you know, a similar idea of like, well, if the darker races are wildly overpopulating, well, we got to do something here, right? Because to replace the working population in the United States, there are ways to do it without raising the birth rate. You could bring in immigration, right? Yeah. What would be the problem with that? It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a belt and suspenders approach. Black genocide, white baby factories. You're doing both <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. What, the thing that makes it make sense is racism. Um, yeah. Like that's that's how you square that circle. Look, I mean, this is uh, the the Nazis were big into this shit, uh, yeah. encouraging, you know, making it your civic duty to bear German children. 
while they're trying to exterminate unpure races from Europe. You know, um, it also, I think, interestingly, shines some light on the the uh, emptiness of the a classic bit of hypocrisy baiting, liberal hypocrisy baiting, which is to especially now. I mean, now all liberals are pro war, but in the Bush years, um, it was like, oh, you're pro life, huh? Uh, but you're also pro war. Uh, where people die, um, you know, trying to bait the right hypo- on hypocrisy grounds never works. That was also, a Green Day song. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably was right. And you know, the the logic of this is like, oh, if you're pro life, uh, you know, for babies, then you would care about um, uh, sending American teens off to die in a war. And no, it's fucking stupid. But that's this this sort of concept here that we're talking about squares that circle by saying that mm. a part of the reason you need more babies is to compete militarily uh on the international stage you need bigger ar- you need armies to fight wars you know as well yeah. as I- economically you know I, de- I desperately tried to find it but years ago i mean this would have been like 2005 6 whatever uh, when I was delivering pizzas for Domino's, because I'm a sophisticated gent, when I was out on deliveries, I used to listen to NPR, right? Oh, yeah. you, you can only listen to the same songs on the radio so many times, right? <laughs> and um, I, they used to do a speaking series in San Antonio where they would just play speeches from, you know, weird public figures. And I was desperately trying to find this last night. And I couldn't find it. But Newt Gingrich was on one of those, right? And he was speaking. I even remember he was at the, like the Cleveland Forum or Foundation or whatever bullshit, you know, something in Cleveland. And it was about America's, you know, uh, challenges in the future. And one of the things he brings up, and I remember just thinking it was so weird at the time, was how to have th- sex in zero gravity. Is that what he's talking <laughs> about? <laughs> no, what he brings up is the rise of China. And one of the things he talks about is a, an American challenge, you know, regarding the rise of China is like, we just don't have as many kids as them and we're having less every day. It essentially gives this argument that the Quiverful movie gives of like, if we're going to compete with China, we're going to need a lot more people. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're going to need to have like a somewhat equal population. Now he sort of darkly implies that, you know, because if we're going to fight a war with them, we're going to need a lot of people <laughs> to throw at it. Right. But it's both. It's both. It's economically, yeah. industrially and militarily. Yeah. And it's realistic. I mean, and it's like anti-communism too. I mean, it is mm. like this is the perfect you know model for like you know American politics, whereas both like you know you can just cynically use this just as a pure red bait anti-communism thing, right? Being like, oh, China is taking over, blah blah blah, like the red menace. Uh, it could be a it, it is and can be a racist thing domestically, right? Um, like re. Um, imposing and strengthening white supremacy, which ultimately does divide the working class. Like, remember, racism mm-hmm. is not this, you know, like illogical. Just think, there's actual, there's a big reason why the ruling class is really interested in maintaining racism and why America was founded on it. Right? You yep. can create super exploited classes and divide working class that way. So, um, and then also, yeah, just like uh, you know, <laughs> militarily too. You know, you just need a lot of people to fight a war. Like, it's not you, those. You know, Boston Dynamics wasn't always around, folks. Like, you couldn't just <laughs> we have always have killer dog ro- robos, you know, <laughs> go to China. Um, you, you needed to, like, send a, a 16-year-old who, like, listened to, like, Eminem while playing Call of Duty one too many times and was like, damn, this this really me for real. And, you know, like, you need a lot of those people. So, um, it's, yeah. it's like, it's just a, it's a perfect trifecta of everything kind of going into one. But, you know, also... 
like we said with immigration, immigration is another example of a contradiction that you can see and you can say, how can, how can like they possibly, you know, say they want less immigration, uh, but they depend on immigrant labor, you know, like the immigrants like run the U.S. So you, you sir, are actually, um, you know, uh, doing your own goal by, uh, you know, opposing immigration. Right. But because it does seem like a contradiction if you are a mm-hmm. capitalist or if you, you know, benefit from immigrant labor and the U.S. economy is ran on that. Right. It, do- it doesn't really make sense if you look at it from the surface. But actually, you know, those two contradictions really do come together um, nicely and resolve because creating a more creating a more hyper exploited class, right? Creating a more precarious class um, makes them more vulnerable, gives them less rights and makes them easier to control. And also then divides the working class again, because there's one pure first class citizen of the working class, a white working class, you know, man. And there is the Brown immigrant who doesn't really have the same rights. Um, Mm -hmm. Same that can really be applied to the anti-abortion uh, movement too, where this is, a, and you know, this is about control. Uh, and you know, this controls a wide swath of now, like the U S working class women are now in the workforce quite a bit. Um, you know, it makes women, um, in a lot more precarious, uh, in terms of what they actually have control of. Um, and you know, it hangs in the balance too. It makes you really susceptible and frankly, um, you know, can generate desperation, right? That is Mm -hmm. all of great benefit to, you know, the capitalist class. And, you know, that's kind of where you see, so you can see immigration and anti-abortion kind of have these same synthesis with their contradictions. Yeah. And I think, you know, on that immigration issue, I mean, there's two things about immigration. One is obviously like the uh, just fears of bringing in non-large populations, non-white people that have always existed in the United States, right? That motivate, uh, you know, the the not wanting to rely on just immigration. But Jenny Brown actually points out something that I think is really important too, which is we already, you know, are relying about tw- on about 20 million immigrant workers in the United States, right? And that requires a very large apparatus of control. Right. For the to keep those people in their place. Right. (laughs) As you know, you might frame it. Right. And that if that grew substantially more, one apparatus for controlling them would have to grow exponentially larger. Right. Faster than the actual populations growing, which is fucking expensive. But the other part of it is that you might just lose control. I mean, this is the classic Spartan problem, right? If we have too many slaves, you know, we might end up in a spot where we can no longer control all of these slaves, right? And, you know, I mean, this, by the way, was a heated discussion with regards to the importation of African labor uh, in the slave economy of the antebellum South was, you know, if we end up with too many African slaves, like what's going to end up happening, right? We could lose control, you know. All that stuff is all attendant in the immigration debate. And the solution is, we'll make people domestically just have more kids, right? And, you know, as far as the women, the women in the workforce, I don't think that that is, you know, I think this is part of the story too. Women form a much larger portion of the workforce. They're going to form a larger portion of the workforce going forward. And, you know, the reason why sexism has always been attendant to the needs of capitalism is that it's used to exploit women in the workforce, right? Yep. And 
taking away women's reproductive rights, putting them in these positions where they are especially reliant on the healthcare provided from their work, right? Especially reliant on the money provided from their work to live, puts them in a position where they are less able to bargain for rights at work, right? Essentially makes them more exploitable. It means that you can continue paying them less money, right? And maybe even get away with paying even less in the future, it's dis- right? It's disempowering to say the least in every sense of that word. I mean, it, it truly is like it, it strips autonomy and humanity from from, you know, people who can get pregnant. And um, and just beyond that, too, it sends a very clear message. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, uh, you know, this is like a health issue. Uh, pe- abortions happen for a lot of reasons, including just like, you know, uh, occurrences where the pregnancy is just going wrong and like there just needs to be an abortion to save the life of the mother. Right. I mean, like these are um, things that we're not even getting into like scenarios of, um, of non-consensual sex uh, rape and pregnancies that spawn from that um, either. But, you know, these are, it's, it sends a clear message that, you know, you do not really have rights or recourse. And in, in fact, this is a way to dangle, over uh, the growing share of the working class that's, uh, you know, forming the U.S. Yeah, and I think this puts in a very particular relief the 2020 election and what happened, right, which is that the entire Democratic Party mobilized to squash the, you know, primary campaign of the one candidate who is pushing for things like free at the point of service health care and things like that, right? Uh, while they elevated a guy who promised not to do that specifically in the middle of a pandemic, very interesting choice, mm. and also promised uh, not to really do anything about abortion, right? And uh, and had this record of being anti-abortion all the way up until 2020. It was a we haven't even talked about the Hyde Amendment, uh, but he, you know, Biden was a longtime supporter of the Hyde Amendment all the way up until 2020, right? And I think it puts this in a particular relief of the the function of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is to kick the working class and then hold them down. Right. Is to stick the working class head underwater and hold it there. And, you know, I, I hate to quote a David Sirota tweet, but basically, I mean, he was right. He's like, since 2016, the entire Democratic Party's project has been to carpet bomb the left and make sure that it never thinks about trying to hold power again. And I think all this makes sense in the context that we've laid out up to this point, right? Which leads us to a question. What do you guys think the Democrats are going to do about this? I mean, I think, you know, we said it the other day, Brian, I think everybody knew exactly immediately that the answer to that is they're going to run on it and that's it. Yeah, fundraise. <laughs> yeah, they're going like, to fundraise. I mean, they're going to campaign. We don't. We don't need to speculate. They're already doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, the very night the DNC sent an email saying, "Oh, you know, <laughs> donate to the." De- it wasn't even to his particular candidate. Just donate to the Democratic Party uh, because you know this got overturned. And, As if, like, you know, yeah. people in the House and Senate already are controlled by Democrats. But anyway, you know, it's like that's the the purpose of the Democratic Party, right, mm-hmm. Greg? Yeah, at the same moment, tons of Democratic electeds were coming out. Yeah, saying, "Oh, this is terrible," but you know, uh, tune out till November when the the only thing you can do is vote for us. And by the way, uh, I'm just you know, by the way I say this, I'm going to take off all the table all the other options that are possible here. You know, yeah. 
just like immediately they were out in force. They're programmed to to just say that. They're like drones programmed. You can even see it just like go down on Twitter, the logic of like, we can't do anything right now. We do hold power, but we can't do anything. Bring that energy. (laughs) Young people, this is is the most important election of your lifetime and you need to um, elect us and give us money. Um, and so just like keep that energy until November. Right. But like, no, it, yeah. it's not even like, I think it's to the point where we don't even need to have like a, um, a false promise. It's just like, yeah, you see what that, like, you see what these like, uh, Supreme court justices did, uh, and the Republicans and Trump, um, you know, own Trump by, uh, by giving us, uh, $22, um, a month, you know, it's like, it, it's, it, it's becoming almost like, infused within a culture mm-hmm. war right yeah they, that basically they just see it as a forever culture war with no on the ground consequences because really there's none for them right and it I is kind of a yeah it is it is basically like about. a video yeah. game or you know for them where there isn't any actual <laughs> consequences it's just like oh how can we uh how can we play the simulation and then press like oh election day and then see the results on like every decision yeah. that they made up to that as if they're playing like democracy three or some shit <laughs> well, I think the thing, I think the thing too is, uh, it's it's really important to remember and to remind anybody that you're having these conversations with. The second that this article leaked or this you know decision leaked, the Democratic Party could have voted to end the filibuster and codify Roe v. Wade in law and negate this entire silly charade, right? Yeah, they chose not to. And if you talk with libs about this and you bring this up. Their response will be like, oh, you're being ridiculous. Of course they can't do that because they don't want to. And it's like, yes, I agree with you. The Democratic Party won't do this because they do not want to do it. (laughs) You are correct. They actually don't. They actually don't. Right. They'll start naming Democrats who don't want to do it. And you're like, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes, I agree. agree. (laughs) So, I mean, honestly, guys, this brings the, the question of the Democratic Party. I mean, there's a very strong argument that the Democratic Party's whole goal and the reason why they behave in this really like bizarre, mystical way where they think that there's nothing that they can actually do and do not seem like they have any drive to um, change anything or think that there's any possibility of that happening. And it's like, why do they always just want to fundraise this? Because, I mean, primarily the point of the Democratic Party is um, a fundraising machine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the... And if you actually look at that materially, it makes complete sense why the Democratic Party would never want to, you know, have, uh, you know, abortion be an issue that's off the table because it is it drives a lot of donations. It drives a lot of fundraising because you're holding um, a vast swath of the entire population hostage with this threat It's basically a threat saying, hey, you know, if you don't give us money and if you don't vote for us, uh, you know, this thing could bad thing could happen to you. Mm-hmm. Bad thing really could happen to you. So, you know, um, you better you better do this thing. And, you know, if you actually deliver on that, then, hey, the fundraising has gone because if you know what, why would they ever even bother taking action on anything? Does that even benefit the party? Like there's actually fundamental interests are disaligned with yeah. um, helping people or representing people in any meaningful way versus you know, just stringing them along, right? Mm-hmm. For the parties, for the Democratic Party's sake, it is um, a lot more profitable and um, just like beneficial for their power to dangle and leverage threats over people's heads, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, it's it's financial base and it's social base are misaligned, right? And 
Yeah, and the reason for that is basically like if you think about a party in a parliamentary system, it's a social organization that has responsibilities and commitments to its social base, right? But in America, where you essentially just have two official parties uh, run by the state that you have to vote for, that doesn't have to exist, right? And it doesn't, you know? And so the Democratic Party has, as we've described, you know, through here, not only has no responsibilities to its base, but has fundamentally chosen to disconnect all those responsibilities to its base because, as they said in the 1980s, they have nowhere else to go. Yeah, where are they going to go? So, you know, in a two-party system that is jealously controlled by both parties, what you know, there, there are no other options, so they don't actually have to serve any of these interests. And that's the thing. Now, that 1972 election where it was the first time in the primaries that actual members of the Democratic Party were allowed to choose the candidate, right, uh, which came out of the fiasco of the 68 election, the members of the party chose they wanted an anti-war candidate, which the party leadership didn't want, right? So the traditional leadership of the party campaigned against the Democratic candidate in the 72 <laughs> election. They had groups called Democrats for Nixon and things like that. And they made sure that they got crushed, right, that Nixon won a crushing overall victory, right? Uh, Nixon did his own little campaigning, which is a whole other side funny story. But like they won a crushing victory. And the end result of that was the Democratic Party said, this is why you can't have Democratic control within this organization. And they spent from that point on creating a system where that would never happen again. Right. You know, the creation of superdelegates, all this kind of shit to make sure that the party base would never have a say in how the party is run. And by the way, this is the product of that. Right. Like this is why when you ask how could, you know, 70 depending on the polls, you look at 70, 80 percent of Democrats don't want, you know, want, you know, row codified in law. How come the Democrats can't do it? And the answer is because they don't give a shit and they don't have to. That's the answer. It's like going to Arby's and saying, how come you can't bring back the five for five menu? And they'd be like, because fuck you. That's why. Like, <laughs> you'll fucking run this joint. <laughs> Get lost. Yeah, we got Kick the rocks. Beef. Yeah, we got the beef and chatters. We got the power, bitch. Get out of here. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's essentially what the Democratic Party tells us all the time. Kick rocks. Get the fuck out of here. I don't care. It's why Obama could have given that speech where, you know, he immediately gets in office and tells or it was actually before he got elected, where he essentially told the black voting base, the Democratic Party, like, look, guys, you got to stop sagging your pants and fucking turn your hats around. Yeah, right? he like turned on into like Bill Cosby. <laughs> He's yeah, exactly like pants. Bill Cosby. Yeah. yeah Barack it, Obama is exactly in every way like Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first on Mechanical Freak. Barack Obama. Hey. His actions and, and character are just like Bill Cosby. All right, all right, guys, I mean, we can say that, but Bill Cosby's not Muslim, okay? <laughs> but, but yeah, like, but the reason why he could do that, like, could tell essentially the black population is black babies to kick rocks, right? Is as uh, as Democratic strategists would say, what are they going to do? Go vote for McCain, right? And I mean, the thing that was interesting about the 2020 election and the 2016 election is, although it was a small percentage, uh, I think you're starting to see that like black voters will kick rocks and just go vote for Donald Trump or, or yeah. whoever, right? Yeah, because. The Democrats don't give them anything. Like, there's no fucking reason to support the Democratic Party for anybody. They haven't right? done this anything is... for you since, like, like before you were born. Like, <laughs> that they're going to forget that they have to vote for you, you know? It's also, yeah. this whole, this, I, this brings up something I've been thinking about uh, with regards to the, the Supreme Court draft decision being leaked. Uh, kind of what we're talking about, is something we talk about a lot about the fact that our legislative system, Congress and 
including the presidency, is, you know, basically very insulated from democratic pressure of any kind. It's not just the Democratic mm -hmm. Party, but oh, yeah. Yeah. broadly the whole institution is insulated from uh, democratic pressure. I think there's yeah, a lot I, of... I, real, real quick, I mean, yeah, just to say, I mean, anti-abortion sentiment is not popular in the Republican Party either, right? So, I mean, like, these are minority yeah. positions. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, yeah, exa that, exactly. That, to say, it does, they don't, neither party responds to popular pressure. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one reason I've been thinking about is something that has just, I think, reinforced over the last few decades, reinforced itself, it, which is that they don't do anything. And by doing nothing, in some way, contribute to immunizing the institution from that democratic pressure. So, and, you know, as time goes on, the excuses for doing nothing get more and more ridiculous. Like now it's down to uh, the Congress, the maitre d' of Congress was snooty today, you know, um, but like, but still that that is allowed that like that flies that like has mm -hmm. legs somehow because it has been reinforced. It's the self reinforcing process of Congress being impotent. Um, sort of is part of how it insulates itself from uh, democratic pressure because it is easier ultimately to do nothing than to do something. This mm -hmm. in contrast to the Supreme Court, which for reasons of maybe being a smaller body, it being, you know, it's sort of political predilections being different. I don't know. It has chosen to do big things a time over the same period relatively and do legislate to legislate. Um, I think, you know, it's a mistake to like take like the, the dumb lib view that like, obviously that um, the Supreme court is like this apolitical institution that is just like calling balls and strikes on constitutional review, right. Uh, of the laws. We're not that stupid to think that, but I also don't think the Supreme court is as much as the liberals will tell you that they do care about mm -hmm. that shit. They know what they're doing here. They know that if they, if this goes through, if they overturn Roe v. Wade, th thus, you know, paving the way for States to even more harshly than they already are, uh, limit or illegalize abortion, taking away all the other rights that that's based on. They know that this is a major piece of legislation that they're carrying out. They are doing mm -hmm. massive lawmaking on an issue that a large portion of America cares about on some level and many people very fervently. And they know it's fucking unpopular. So this all occurred to me in the around the discussion of like who and why this leaked this and why it was leaked. Right. And, you know, people were saying, Oh, like a, a, a scared, uh, lib leaked it. Then people had other theories about, no, it's, it's the conservatives. And, you know, as like a way of, and I've seen it, it suggested like as a way of cementing it in place, like making mm. it real rather than waiting. I don't know what the logic of that is. Actually. I don't, I don't get that argument. Um, I think they're, they know what they're doing. They know they're legislating and they know that when you do something big, you are, they have the political instincts. Tell me what you guys think of this. I think, you know, when you're doing something this big, it is inevitable and attendant that that will be subject to some democratic pressure. So they have maybe the political instincts 
not to get their dick slammed in the door as they're rushing to close it behind them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That this is basic, that leaking it is about floating it, is testing the waters, is seeing how close to collapse America comes um, so that if it does fizzle out, if there's protests that don't really do anything, if if you know if it's really just like some libs get out in the street and get angry about it, but the Democratic Party gets its way and co-ops and tamps down this and says just vote in November, then when it really comes time to do it later this summer, they will have the confidence that that mm-hmm. that's going to work. Rather than again having this clear view of how politics works, rather than you know, just trying to get it out there because they're eager uh, little ideologues who are going to like mm. slap it down and say, fuck you, America. Uh, we did this knowing that there is gonna, that there may be Democratic pressure put back on them and that they are responsible not just to their, you know, weird Catholic ideology, but also to the power structure in this country that may have a fucking problem you know, if there is major upheaval in the wake of that, that then is much harder to undo mm-hmm. and that they may know and understand our political system outside of the Supreme Court is like completely broken and can't react or do anything about, you know. So mm-hmm. that's I mean, tell me what you guys think of that. I think that I think this is a this is just doing politics. This is like basic political maneuvering and this is being floated to see what the response is, which yeah. you know leads into what we can do about this, which is you know what maybe we're going to talk about shortly here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a compelling point, Greg. And I think that that really you know makes a lot of sense. And I honestly even go a step further and say that this is just another step of a decades long um, version of that floating. I think that this has been floated. To, and we've been primed and conditioned for years and really decades um, mm-hmm. for this result of overturning uh, Roe v. Wade, right? And um, everything we've been talking about, everything mm-hmm. we've been talking about, plus um, you know states uh, passing like laws, just like recently, like the heartbeat law in Texas. You know, like there's um, you know uh, a lot of other states that were already passing laws with Roe v. Wade, you know, mm-hmm. in place, obviously. And just like within, you know, the the media narratives, too, is it's always Roe v. Wade is under threat. Um, You know, like there's a lot of uh, rising anti-abortion cases. And I think, yeah, this leak is just another one of those. So it just makes sense. Yeah. You know, we maybe haven't mentioned it today, but we did on the end of the last episode say that like Roe v. Wade being overturned, allowing states to like, you know, open up a fire hose on anyone you know trying to exercise their bodily autonomy in in various ways is big it's important but like the reality that we know is that uh abortion rights in particular have been eroded steadily and heavily for Mm -hmm. the last 20 years and for lots of people in america it's already uh basically illegal for them and inaccessible uh because of all this erosion. So yeah, Roe v. Wade doesn't just like prevent any like, uh, you know, reproductive rights to be stripped as like oh, reproductive rights have been stripped like so significantly, um, mm-hmm. you know, for years. Right. So I, I just think that like, when I saw this, like it was a little more shocking that it got leaked than the actual outcome. Cause you know, to be completely candid, my reaction when I saw that was, Oh, okay. My, it finally happened. 
because yeah. it just felt like it was this inevitability and this like, you know, build up to this moment that was so clearly coming. Right. Um, yeah. Because reproductive rights have been like stripped a lot. And, you know, if you want to go like more on like the, um, you know, not on the lawmaking side, but just on the, you know, culture side and how it radicalizes people. You know, I went to Washington State University in my freshman year. Um, a Planned Parenthood got arsoned. Right. Yeah. This is this is a, in a county that actually, you know, like it, it, eastern Washington goes red. Our county, Whitman County, uh, you know, like went blue, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it, it's still in our near our college campus of Planned Parenthood completely got raised. And I don't think it got built back. I think it was just, it was gone. Yeah. I didn't see it again after that. Right. Well, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. dating back to when I was in high school, so back to the nineties, you know, it was widely acknowledged that in the state of Texas, if you lived outside of one of the major urban areas, meaning if you didn't have a million people in your city, uh, that basically receiving an abortion was impossible. Like there wasn't a clinic, right? Ability to travel to one was, you know, extremely difficult, right? They made it, you know, going into the 2000s, they made it where you had to make take multiple trips, you know, because you'd have to go for like screenings and things like that before you could have it. All that kind of stuff. It was functionally illegal and people had complained about this for decades. Now, the Democratic Party didn't give a shit about any of those people. So they just told them to shut the fuck up and kick rocks, right? Well, and but, vote for us anyway. And vote for us anyways. <laughs> but those are the same people now looking at, you know, I mean, let's be serious, well-off white women panicking in major coastal cities and saying, yeah, fuck off. You know, you fucked us for decades. So fuck off. I don't care, right? And this is actually how the Democratic Party functions. This is how it busts up coalitions, right? Is it creates these wedges, usually based around class, race, gender lines, and it sort of smashes up any popular base that could demand anything of it, right? Now, Mm -hmm. as far as Greg's point, I think the thing they learned from, you know, the, you know, protests following George Floyd is that you can wait these things out, even when they come from, political bases that are much better mm-hmm. organized, that are much more coherent mm-hmm. and are much more ready and angry to get in the streets that you can wait them out. And by doing this, this is actually, I mean, you know, nobody knows who leaked this, but this is, I mean, if, if, if you want to get conspiratorial, this is fucking brilliant because you've now given the, the requisite few months to wait out any yep. anger from yep. popular sport. The democratic party has a reason not to do anything for a few months. Cause Hey, it hasn't happened yet. So who knows? Maybe uh, the justices will change their minds guys. Yep. And so they have, they don't have any excuse to panic legislate or anything. Right. And then by the time it does happen, everybody has become inured to it. Right. They're just, you know, Oh, this is just the way it is. Now. It's inevitable. And it's a formality. It becomes inevitable. And yep. in that sense, again, I mean, this is how, governing works under neoliberalism right in everything that matters to people you make it look as if the state is incapable of acting and just and then, can't do anything whatever does happen when it happens is a fait yeah. accompli yep it's just yep. the result of the inevitable turning of history right but somehow you know, the second that it's happening it's also simultaneously already happened and so there's nothing you can do about <laughs> it's it it's natural law it's time basically. travel you know yeah. yeah which has probably collapsed this is probably the reason why every like lib now lives their life like memento where they can't remember anything that happened to them <laughs> mm-hmm. today. yeah but you know i think i just want to bring up one more point before we talk about maybe what solutions we could bring about here but the other thing is that uh, we say the state with it stuff that matters to you all of a sudden is completely incapable of doing stuff. Right. But when it's stuff that matters to the capitalist class, they're extremely capable of doing things. And one thing the Democratic Party is both promising and doing across the country is to fund, fund, fund the police. 
right? Uh, Biden is, you know, bringing us back to the 90s. He's going to double every police budget, <laughs> you know. Uh, basically, every police department in America is going to have a budget twice the size of the Russian militaries. Um, these people, by the way, that the Democratic Party are funding are these stormtroopers who are going to be arresting women, doctors, etc., for trying to fight back against this attack on women's reproductive rights, right? And the Democratic Party is not just not doing anything to protect women's reproductive rights. They're literally creating an army of psychotic stormtroopers, right, which already exists, but they're in, in making it larger to attack them, which we got to see in L.A. the very night of... Uh, Fucking crazy. You know, yeah, where LAPD and members of the Department of Homeland Security, by the way, Biden's personal goon squad, could have called them off at any moment. Mm. Uh, he, just, he went to bed early, Brian. <laughs> Brian, he's he was, an old he's man. sleepy old he man. Sleep. <laughs> Look, it was after sundown, and we all know that he's not quite as capable. That was in Pacific time, <laughs> and the sun was down in Pacific time. You think that he stays up that late on the East huh? Coast? Please. <laughs> but yeah i mean we've talked about the show a million times everybody's heard it but the police are a political organization an extreme right-wing political organization they are armed with tanks military equipment they're armed with the best surveillance gear that this country is you know has to offer from companies like boeing amazon etc right and they're, they're, and they're be, armed with a political valence and a unity yep and they're going to be tar- tasked with enforcing this all right and i think that you know when people said Oh, saying to fund the police or, you know, like I said, you guys are just being bull. These are those are lofty lefty goals that just, you know, all they do is get us stuck in the weeds or whatever. This is why you have to make these kind of arguments. This is why you have to have the no compromise, no excuses fucking you know viewpoint if you actually want to succeed in politics. Now, that being said, uh, you know, we should talk a little bit about what is being done, what can be done about this. Uh, for that, we'll go to our on-the-street reporter, Greg, who was there at the rally in Seattle on uh, Tuesday, right? Wednesday. Yeah, on Tuesday, Tuesday I went Tuesday. down to the uh, rally at Westlake, which was put on basically by, uh, I mean, I'm sure a coalition, uh, but it was basically organized by Shama's office and uh, Socialist Alternative. And all the speakers had, uh, you know, uh, that bent. Um, it was a big turnout. Uh, friend of the show, Sonny, uh, spoke. Gave a Hell yeah. Awesome Yay, speech and was uh, uh, also uh, yeah, quoted widely. Um, it was interesting because, you know, it drew a big crowd, uh, bigger than the uh, Starbucks workers rally a little over a week earlier. Um, and you got to figure that a lot of that crowd um, was like nice little old lady libs um, feeling energized in this moment, at least for a day. Mm-hmm. Brushed um, off the the pussy hats, yeah. <laughs> dusted those off. Uh, you know, I did see some pink in the crowd. Um, I don't know <laughs> if I actually saw any pussy hats. I was looking. Um, uh, but uh, I feel like it was kind of like an old timey soup kitchen. Is like you can come in, you can march with us, but you got to listen to a whole Shama Sawant speech. you don't have to sing the hymns but you know you gotta hear them yeah we gotta listen to it (laughs) and uh and they got a fucking earful i mean from everybody but uh shama characteristically i mean is you know is always there always right there in front saying exactly what needs to be said um and the message was 
a lot of what we've been talking about, fuck the Democratic Party. They've fucked you on this for years. They're going to keep fucking you and they're going to do nothing about this. Um, forget about the legislative so, uh, solutions at this point. Just ignore it. Doesn't matter because the only way, because it's essentially a distraction. I think, you know, maybe if uh, you drilled down with her on this, maybe she would concede that a legislative uh victory in this realm might be a part of any uh, victory in the future. But the important thing is it doesn't matter at this point because the only thing you can do is to organize in the streets, to get in the streets and basically to organize, to shut down the fucking economy. She talked about organizing the labor movement of the country to stand up against this, to get in your unions and start organizing strikes, walkouts, uh, she connected this, of course, to, you know, as we have capitalism exploitation broadly and talked about the need to connect this to the Amazon and Starbucks workers organizing movements, that this should be a part of those movements and getting, you know, retail and warehouse workers on the street as well. Um, and that that's going to be the thing that's going to do this. And I think, you know, I think we're all on board with that, that it's about what made Roe v. Wade happen in the first place. As we've said, again, another bit of history Shama touched on was the fact that as we've said, like this this decision was made by a very conservative court um, of largely Republicans and, you know, <laughs> uh, misogynist white supremacist uh, ancient white mummies, you know. <laughs> and like that was done by a, a vast coalition of people, not just uh, feminists in the streets organizing, but alongside the civil rights movement and uh, other movements at the time that were in the street that got in the street over this issue that led to like a lot of what was going on in that period, this sort of the end of that period of the power structure conceding to some demands out of fear, out of mm -hmm. fear. And, you know, Shama used that language, the, the language of, uh, striking fear in the hearts of the power structure of this country such that they are forced to give in to democratic pressure and change their tune on this. Um, and that's that's all that's going to do it. So anyway, yeah, if you missed it, um, uh, bummer for you. But I'm sure, you know, uh, there'll be more more chances to meet and march and shout at power with the comrades because what we got to hope, I mean, the second this happened, this this news came out, my immediate thought was there's not going to be chaos in the streets. We're not going to get an up another uprising over this, even to the extent, you know, that we had with the George Floyd protests, which in themselves did not really show any gains, but I don't know now. I mean, I, I went to this rally. I, I can picture this going multiple ways. I can picture this fizzling out in a week or two. Um, or I can see this being another summer of uprising that escalates, um, that brings in more people, more groups organizing along more lines that brings in, you know, with, with this, the new energy in a new sort of rank and file labor movement happening in retail and warehouses at Starbucks and Amazon. I, I think based on what we talked about on, uh, the episode with the Starbucks organizers this week, that there is a focus in that movement, seemingly at least here on political education, on connecting, um, organizing labor into taking political power for, in the ways that, you know, and for the demands that need to happen in the country and the world. And so I, I don't think it's, uh, out of the question to see those movements picking this issue up and making it a part of 
their own and standing in solidarity here. But, but I just don't know. I mean, I know what needs to happen. Everybody needs to get mm-hmm. in the street. And if you want to preserve the bodily autonomy of uh, people who can get pregnant or fuck uh, any of the other social rights that have been like loosely uh, framed on top of the foundation of uh, Roe v. Wade, then you're going to have to shut down the economy or or demonstrate the power on the ground to an extent that it scares the power structure enough to uh, respond, um, to acquiesce. I don't know if that can happen. I would, I, it'd be great if it could, but I mean, all you can do is continue to get in the streets, organize at your workplaces. Uh, there's, you know, uh, Shama and other people that we're calling for and talking about organizing school walkouts, uh, and workplace walkouts. Um, that, I mean, you know, if if that builds over the summer of just workplace walkouts, if you can get like the actual like lamely politicized libs to buy into this and like walk out, you know, for the second half of a day once a week for the next few months out of their professional jobs, I, you know, maybe that can be a part of uh, making uh, making this right. I don't know. But like, that's what it's going to take. Yeah, and I think the key thing, right, is this this comment about fear. Too many people think that our political system runs on a system of cooperation and whatever. And that's not really how it works, right? Uh, we are actually in struggle in our political system. We are not cooperating, right? And they do not, the Democratic Party does not fear your vote, right? The way they see it is your vote is owed to them and that you have nowhere else to go, all right? So your vote means nothing, <laughs> in the realm of politics. And they'll tell you that to their face. Yeah, they're very clear about that. They say it explicitly. They don't care, right? There's also, you know, the largest study of, you know, political outcomes and popular opinion is shown that since 1980, like voting literally in political or people's political opinions and how they vote has no outcome on policy outcomes. All right. I'm sorry. It doesn't fucking matter. Voting doesn't matter. All right. What does matter Shutting down workplaces mm-hmm. because that is something they actually fucking care about, which is money, right? If you cut off their money, which the only way to do that is the denial of your labor, right, to them, then you can get their attention. Now, that attention is going to come in the form of the police coming and trying to kick your fucking door down and brutalize you back to work. But that is how politics are won. All right. Uh, you know, if you want something one on the left, that's how it's always fucking happened. All right. For now, there's still and, more of us than there are cops. Yeah. For how and, much longer? I don't know. But yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus <laughs> Christ. But yeah. So, I mean, you have to support labor movements. All right. I know it seems like that is, you know, outside the realm of this issue we're talking about. But no, you have to support mm-hmm. labor movements. That's what you need to do. If you're not in a unionized workplace, you should start talking with your coworkers about what it might take to change that situation. All right. And if you are, you should start talking with your coworkers about making sure your union uh, takes their political power seriously and uh, commits to applying it to this matter. Yeah, exactly. Now, on the personal side, I mean, there have been, you know, as always on Twitter, a lot of uh, goofy suggestions that you should absolutely not be making on a easily viewable and recordable <laughs> website. Um Take the surveillance power of the police seriously, guys, for the love of God. Um, but I, I got to say, I mean, in the, you know, in th- <laughs> I've been politically active in left politics for 20 fucking years. And this is certainly the 
the last like year has been about the scariest time, I think, as far as what the future looks like, uh, just in the sort of where all the arrows are pointing. Stop fucking posting. Go meet people in real life. All right. And you need to start building those community and social bonds that you're going to absolutely need as things get worse. So stop treating DSA like it's a fucking, you know, high school soiree, right? Or whatever organization you're in where you're just there to argue about bullshit. And, you know, you're going to have to like start to actually build those social and community bonds because you're going to need those people. I promise you, nobody's going to survive in America as an individual unit. All right. You're just going to get ground under the fucking wheels. All right. What we need in the working class is deeper community bonds and not more posting. All right. As I say, as a poster. (laughs) Yeah. Take it from a poster, you know, just like uh, we're like this. the PSA ads for anti-cigarettes where like the people with the hole in their neck are like, yeah, I smoke and I still smoke, but it's like, I have to, you know, smoke through my neck now and stuff. Like, yeah, (laughs) take it from us. Like, you know, like this posting stuff, ain't it? Um, (laughs) And, you know, like these things that both Greg and Brian talked about, these are the keys folks. Like this whole hostage situation, you have to view the ruling class, which consists of the uh, political establishment as well as the capitalist class, as your oppressors. When you're voting, you're voting, you're choosing your oppressor and you are the oppressed, right? To break out of that, that exploitative dichotomy, labor has to be organized and you have to support labor and you have to have strong community bonds, right? That actually breaks you free of this never-ending fucking contradiction that makes you feel hopeless um, alienated and just like and sad, miserable, and just feel like you give up. To actually gain power is to have leverage against your oppressor, right? And yeah. and to actually use that leverage. Otherwise, yeah. it's not going to work out. Yeah. So you know, there's Our, there's hope. There's hope in that. We have no individual power. All we have is collective power. Yeah, now, mm-hmm. that being said, I'd like to propose a you know move you know to build collective power and achieve an important political goal, which is the protection of the queen, Susan Sarandon. Let's go. And that I am proposing now on all three of our behalves that uh, Susan Sarandon uh, take us on as sister husbands. (laughs) 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 Susan Sarandon, marry all three of us, and we will protect her to the end of time. We'll protect our queen. (laughs) Protect our queen. Yeah, Susan Sarandon rocks, uh, you know, uh, but like I said, Go out, meet real people. All right. Susan, Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon is yeah. gonna like, uh, uh, like to talk to all three of us. Be like, okay, boys, and we're like, yes, goddess. We need to do targeted <laughs> harassment today to yeah. women online. Yeah. We're on, we're on Susan Sarandon <laughs> protection duty to open up uh, the room for you guys to go do real political here, here, action. Here's their, okay. here's their at handles, boys. You know what to do. <laughs> all right. So well, I think that's good. Uh, we'd like to thank, by the way, uh, a new patron here, and I probably going to destroy this tweet or this name because it's got an umlaut in it. Uh, this is really hurting my uh, German cred. Like every <laughs> American, I like to claim a fake allegiance to some country. Uh, in Bronte Neal, congratulate, welcome hey, to the fold. And Bronte Neal is a is a follower on our Instagram. That's 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 awesome. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right, well. 
You should yeah, become thanks. a follower on our Discord, where uh, lots of fun things are happening at all times. All yeah. right. Well, with that being said, we'll see everybody uh, next week and maybe in the streets. All right. Uh, bye, everybody. Yeah, solidarity. Solidarity. Solidarity.